running your race with a pace of grace. Now that's a lot of, uh, a lot of words, kind of a tongue twister. But the reason for the series is I just see so many Christians who have so much on their plates and they're, whether they're serving or whether they're trying to raise a family or whether they're trying to just live in this life for God, it's, it just wears them down so much to the point where it almost becomes discouraging to keep doing what they've been doing for so long. And so what this series is meant to do is to help Christians avoid spiritual burnout. I believe God gives us grace. And that grace enables us to live for Him any way that He asks us to. That grace is helpful and beneficial in service. It's helpful and beneficial in our daily lives. And so we're studying that we would pace ourselves, not as a, a, a quick sprint, but what life is, a marathon. We would pace ourselves with a pace of grace. And so Ephesians chapter 2 We begin reading this evening in verse number 1. The Bible says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we have all our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Sounds like somebody you would want to spend time with, doesn't it? A child of wrath, who were by nature a child of wrath, fulfilling their lusts and their desires. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes, would be kind of an old Testament way of saying what verses 1 through 3 are talking about. Sounds like somebody that you would want to be around. Uh, Really, that verse is describing you and me before we met the Lord Jesus. Verse number 4, kind of, it's continuing the same thought, but if you will, the passage begins to pivot. And the first three verses, the focus is on you. And who you were. And now we pivot to talking about God. Before you were a child of wrath. Before you fulfilled the lusts of your desires and of your flesh. In verse number 4, the, the, the passage pivots, begins to speak of God. And verse number 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. In His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Grace 
is what changes the sinner to become saved. Grace is what makes the wicked and dirty person clean and able to function in the life that Christ wants us to live. Grace is so much a vital part of your Christian life, and yet we speak so very little about it. This evening, what I want to talk to you about is the laws of grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I ask tonight for your blessing. I've already asked, but I ask again, Lord, that I would submit myself to you and that you would lead me in this pulpit however you see fit. And Lord, I pray that you would give the folks in this room discipline, enough to focus on the sermon and focus on the Word of God, and that for just these few brief moments they would be able to put the worries that are outside these walls aside so that they might listen to what your Holy Spirit might be speaking to them tonight. Dear God, I pray that you would change us as a result of encountering truth in your word tonight. I ask in Jesus' precious and powerful name, amen. Now, I would like to begin the sermon by starting in verse number four, and I want to teach you a biblical principle that will springboard into the sermon. Verse four, the Bible says, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Now the study has not been on mercy. The study is not on mercy. But mercy is is beneficial to our study because without mercy you have no grace. In fact, verse number 4 tells us that the genesis of our relationship with God was his love. In fact, it says we received mercy For his great love, wherewith he loved us. You see, love is what prompted God to start a relationship with us in the first place. And yet we, we could blame it on our our great-grandma and great-granddad if we want. We could say it's Adam and Eve's fault. But I have a feeling that if I had been in the garden, I'd have probably done the one thing that I wasn't allowed to do. I'd have probably ate the fruit myself. And I'm just as guilty as they are. So you and I, we screwed up what God started. And God's love constrained His mercy. You see, God loved us so much that He couldn't just abandon the work that He had started. His love was so involved in in Adam and Eve's life and he, he loved them so much and he adored the time that he got to spend with them every day. He adored that time so much that his love was then constrained to give mercy. What is mercy? Well, mercy is God withholding punishment that is due our way. It's when God withholds something that we rightly deserve. The prophet in Habakkuk chapter number 3 verse 2, he said, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. And he says these words, and listen to me. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. You see, the prophet understood full well that the nation of Israel had done things that deserved punishment. The prophet knew that they were going to receive some type of chastisement because if God loves his children, he would be a poor father if he did not chastise them when they do wrong. And the prophet said, Lord, I know wrath is coming our way. I understand that we've trespassed against your law and I understand we've done things that don't please you. But the prophet's prayer was this, O Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. He was saying, Lord, 
somewhere along the line of what we are due and what our actions have, have sent our way somewhere when, when the, the consequences come down the line, Lord, I pray that your mercy would step in and would withhold the punishment that we rightly deserve. David in his prayer in Psalm chapter 51, when he begins to pray about forgiveness for his sin with Bathsheba, his very first words to God are these, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. You see, love and God's love for us invests in us mercy. But mercy only withholds something that we deserve. It does not fix what we broke. You see, God's love and His investment and His compassion towards us is what got His attention to withhold our punishment, which was mercy. But God realized that He had to fix the problem that we created, and there comes in grace. You see, if mercy is withholding something that we do deserve, grace is Him giving us something that we do not deserve. Mercy withholds from us a punishment in hell. Grace gives us a home in heaven. And we read here in God's holy word that grace and mercy and love are the things in the Christian life that we ought to focus on each and every day. See, grace was the answer to the dilemma that God's mercy put him in. His mercy wanted to fix the problem and grace was the answer. You ever been out in public with your children and whether it's at a restaurant or whether it's at uh, Walmart or whatever and maybe one or both or all three of them begin to act like hoodlums and you're just struggling, I tell you, and, and you realize everybody's looking at you and you realize that everybody's judging you like they're the perfect parent and they've never been in the exact same situation you are. It was not until I got children that I realized when something like that is going down, I no longer look at the parent and be like, you're doing a terrible job. I think, parent, you do whatever you've got to do. I mean, I ain't going to say nothing. I'll turn my eyes. You just do what you got to do to get this kid to do whatever you need him to do. And I never realized that until I became a parent. But man, there's sometimes Bailey and Caitlin and Thomas. I say Bailey because that's generally the order of which these types of things occur. Bailey, then Caitlin, then Thomas. But I, I, it's so frustrating. And what you want to say to them is you want to... You can't do anything in public for fear of the, the society we live in now. So you, you say something to the effect of, you just wait until we get home. <laughs> and you have to say it kind of under your breath, but you try to say it impactfully and meaningfully so they know that you're mean, you mean business. And you'll say, you just wait until we get home. I'm going to wring your neck, which I still don't know what that means. That was a threat that I received many times. I thought it was like a medal. I'm going to wring your neck. I didn't know. You just bleed. But here's what God did for us. We were acting that way. We were the child of wrath. And we by nature did what pleased us. And here's what God said. You just wait till you get home so I can give you something good. You see, that's not the way 
that this world works. When you do bad, you should receive bad. When you break the law, you should receive punishment. And yet, while we broke God's law, instead of acting in in righteous indignation, God said, I love you so much, I will be merciful to you and display grace unto you. And he said, you wait until you get home. I'm going to shower you in the best that you've ever had. Boy, our God's good, isn't he? Man, like the hymn writer said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Grace is certainly amazing. But as we find it in Scripture, grace operates under certain laws. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find law and grace being somewhat in opposition to one another. The law referring to the Mosaic law and grace referring to what Christ ushered in. He fulfilled the law so that the New Testament believer might be able to live under grace. But grace operates under a few certain laws, and we'll talk about them this evening. Number one, the first law of grace is this. God's grace is universal. Look in verse number four, if you will. The Bible says, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. You see, love and mercy and grace, God has never run short of any of those categories. You know what God's run short of? He's run short of faithful Christians before. You know what God's run short of? He's run short of ministry volunteers. He said, look, the fields are wide unto harvest, but the laborers are few. But God has never checked his cupboard to find himself lacking in love, mercy, or grace. We studied it last week and we touched on it briefly, but Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to... All men. You see, God's grace is universal. And there are two primary ways in which He has revealed this grace to every man. You with me? Number one, He reveals it to us through His supplying grace. His supplying grace. God gives you, therefore, He is giving you something you do not deserve. If He gives you anything but punishment, you do not deserve it. Therefore, God is gracious to everyone, including unsaved unsaved Christians. Yeah, them and unsaved non-Christians alike. (laughs) Acts chapter 14, verse number 17, the Bible says, Nevertheless, he left not himself without a witness, in that he did good, and he gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. In the New Testament, we find God's goodness as a minister of His grace. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, For in Him we live and move and have our being. Christian, does that verse apply to you? Does God sustain your life? Absolutely. Well, let me ask you, does a non-Christian get it from somewhere else? They get it from the same place we get it. And He is showing grace to them in giving them life and giving them blessings. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, the Bible says, For He maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. In Scripture there is a principle that God not only blesses the righteous, but He even can bless the unrighteous. And why would He do this? Well, I'll tell you why. To display His grace to them. It's amazing, but sometimes I'll turn on the news and I'll see people protesting police officers. And I understand in our cultural environment, in our society, we, we, we have so many bad things that have happened, but do not allow a 10-second video to define that officer's career. Amen. Don't allow what someone can make you think by their words. Don't, don't judge an entire book just by its cover, if you will. And I'm just amazed at how sometimes I'll turn on the television and I'll find people protesting the very people that keep us safe. And what I find unique is if that person who's holding up a picket sign that says, believes lives do not matter. If I turn on uh, the news and I see that that same person goes home and someone breaks into their house, you know what's going to happen if they call 911? The police are going to show up. And the same people that they're protesting will be the same people that then give them care in their time of need. Now, I'll tell you what, friend, I don't know if somebody that'll stand there and pick at the very people that protect them and keep them safe, I don't know if they deserve it. To me, it would seem like, okay, you stand against those people who are giving their lives, who every day strap on a bulletproof vest so that you and I can be safe when we sleep. You want to protest them? If it's up to me, I say they don't deserve their protection. It's a good thing it ain't up to me, though, isn't it? And yet that's the very same way that God operates. He gives protection. He gives care. He gives blessing even to those who you and I don't believe deserve it. Every atheist teacher that has a mind to reason stands up in their classroom tomorrow as a blessing from God. They wouldn't have their mind otherwise. Every adulterer who lives another day does so at the result of God's grace. Every murderer, drug lord, and dope addict opens their eyes from their sleep in the morning because of God's grace. And you and I may look at that and we say, how can that happen? Why does God do that? Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth to repentance? God's good to those that in this world that might not by our estimation deserve it, so that they may see God's grace in their life. For the grace of God hath been revealed to all men. Number one, he gives it through supplied grace. Number two, he gives it through saving grace. Now God's saving grace is exposed to all men, but experienced by only some men. See, the Bible tells us that the law of God is written on every man's heart. The Bible tells us that even creation testifies that there's a creator. How can you look at the planet that we live on and say, yeah, I think this is all just a big dink." How can you do that? The Bible tells us that just the fact that this earth exists and just the fact that there's people on this earth tells us that there's a creator. 
God's saving plan has been revealed to every single man. And yet there are some, even within Christian circles, that would like to act as if God just pick and chose who he wanted to go to heaven, thereby default sending the others to hell. You know what it's like? How many of y'all remember in recess when your PE teacher said, hey, let's, uh, let's all pick teams. Uh, you be a team captain and you be a team captain. And everybody else stands up against the wall. How many of you remember these days? And there you are, you're hoping you're going to be picked. And they say, okay, I'll take Erica. And so Erica's the first pick. And then team number two goes in. And I'll take Jennifer. And uh, you said, I got picked before two girls. Uh, that's not good. And then, and then you're standing there. And name after name after name after name rattles off. And you keep standing by the wall. That is the picture that some people paint on God's offer of salvation. It's like... When God created us, he stood us all up against the wall and he said, okay, I pick you to go to heaven. I pick you to go to heaven. I pick you to go to heaven. And the rest of you, well, you're just out of luck. If you read the Bible, how can you in your mind look at the face of grace that hangs on a cross and say, he is selecting anyone? Oh, my friend, I just look at God's grace and I say, He saved every man if every man will choose Him. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made just a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. How can you sit there and act like God picked and chose some to come to heaven and some to earth, uh, uh, some to hell? Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And last time I checked, we all live in this puppy. Romans chapter 10, verse 11 through 13 says, For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between Jew or the Greek. For the same Lord is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God's grace is revealed through saving people. God saves and God supplies. If really God chose some and rejected some, why did Jesus waste his time with a rich young ruler? Think about it. If the rich young ruler says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Why didn't just Jesus say, you can't? You're out of luck, Jack. Because today, no matter what I said to you, I could give you the greatest sermon of your life. I could tell you the depths of my love for you. And yet today you're going to walk away and reject me. Why did he even go into the fact that the man needed to trust Jesus? Why did he even go into the fact that there was something in his life more important than his love for the Savior? Why did he even waste his time if truly that man was destined to hell? God's grace is universal. That law is never ending. That law is never changing. God's grace is universal. Number two, the second law that God's grace operates under is this. God's grace is unequaled. Did you know that you have never experienced grace like the grace that God can show you? Sometimes when preachers in, in, uh, comes to church on a Monday when payday is, 
he'll see the checks getting distributed to all the staff members. And what he'll do is he'll grab the checks from my mom as she's distributing all the checks. And he'll take a red pen and he'll take this red pen and he'll draw on the check a red bow. And he hands it to us and he's just trying to tell us, I want you to know that this is a gift of grace. You didn't earn this this week. And no doubt all of us have at one point or another experienced grace, a blessing of something that we did not deserve. <clears throat> whether that was from our employer, whether that was from a family member, whether that was from a stranger, we've all experienced grace, a gift or a blessing given that we probably didn't deserve. But can I say this? Nobody does a grace like God. God's grace is unequaled. It's unequaled in its identification. Look in verse number 6. The Bible says, And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Oh, you could look back at verses 1 through 3, and you would find your description. Boy, there's a laundry list of things that you did wrong. There's a laundry list of things that separated you from God. And yet, in verse number 5, we find the Bible says, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. He has made us alive and joined us at the hip with Jesus Christ. Man, it's an amazing thing to be in the same breath or conversation as Jesus, much less be identified with him. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, God, who at sundry times in diverse manners spake unto us uh, through the prophets, hath in these last days unto us spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he hath made the worlds, who being the, the, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Ere Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God, is the express image of his person. He has received a name much higher than the angels. And all the angels, all they do and all they sing all day long is holy, holy is the Lamb. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 4 and 5 that there's going to be a group of angels that all they can say is worthy is the Lamb to receive glory and honor. Isaiah chapter 6 tells us that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and there were seraphims that couldn't even look at the, the glory of Jesus and they flew with two wings and they covered their face with two wings and they covered their feet with two wings and they looked at Jesus and they said holy, holy, holy. Where are, you in at, where are you at in all this? <laughs> right beside him. You are identified with Jesus. The Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. The Bible tells us that our, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There's no type of uh, pleasing God in our flesh. And yet the Bible now tells us that we are clothed in the very righteousnesses of Jesus. We are identified with Jesus. 
And I'm telling you right now, if there is one thing that makes me believe that God's grace is unequaled in this world, it is this, that now my identification means something. You've probably never had the privilege of going to a coon hunt with Gene Wolfenbarger, but let me tell you, it's a blessing. You go to a coon hunt with Gene Wolfenbarger, he walks through the building there, all them foul-mouthed coon hunters, they stop cussing. All them brothers up in there, they talk about their dog, but Gene Wolfenbarger walks in there, they listen when he talks. You see, Gene Wolfenbarger was somebody in that coon hunting world. You know who's somebody else in the real world? Jesus is somebody in the real world. I walk through that building with Gene Wolfenbarger, they don't know who I am. They think I'm his armor bearer. They don't know. And I know that my name may never be famous, and I recognize that the my name will never be on billboards, and I recognize that probably the most people that will ever see my name are my 47 followers on Twitter. Hey, man, please don't follow me. I'll disappoint you, I'm quite sure. But I'm just saying this. If my life never amounts to any level of fame, my identification cannot be that I am somebody, but I am only somebody when I am in Christ. God's grace is unequaled in its identification. But not only that, it is unequaled in its demonstration. Verse number 7 says, That in the ages to come, he, this, this Christian, if this does not blow your spiritual mind, you have something wrong with you. The reason God loved you, the reason God gave you mercy, the reason God gave you grace, the reason Christ died on the cross, the reason that you're now saved, the reason that you're on your way to heaven, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You know, the whole reason that God's redemption plan involved His Son dying on a cross? So that one day He could shower you in grace. Man, that's unreal. That's why I find it comical when somebody will correct the King James Version and they'll say, you know, in my father's house, I know the King James says mansions, but I just, you know, newer translations, I believe. And, and they'll say, well, if you carry this plus sign and the minus sign and the divided and you go to the ancient Greek and you find all this stuff and you go to the Dead Sea Scrolls and you ask a, 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 a Jew, a, a, a Masoretic Jew, if you, you talk to everybody, you'll find out that it's rooms in heaven. Don't sound like very riches to me. I, mean, I go to Motel 6 and get rooms. If I was going to change God's word in that particular matter, I would probably change it something like this. In my father's house are many planets. I go to create one for you. And you say, Brother Andrew, well, that's, that's ridiculous. You know what? You're right. But if I'm going to question God, I might as well question him about how great he is, not how small he is. The fact that somebody could ever believe that the best that God can do is a bunch of manufactured housing and, and rooms, what kind of God do we serve? I'm telling you, this God that I read about in the New Testament, this God that I read about in the Old Testament, the entire reason Christ died on the cross, so was that in the ages to come, He might demonstrate each and every day the depth and the 
abundant amount of resources that he has for us, the depth of his riches and grace and mercy towards us. God's ready to demonstrate it to you. The other day, we, me and my wife on Valentine's Day, we went to Olive Garden and uh, the waiter was nice. He did a good job and I gave him my card to pay for the meal and he brought it back and it's one of those American Airlines cards and uh, he, he came back and he said, man, do you use that for the aviator club? I'm like, man, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, like the, the aviator club uh, or ambassadors club. Is that what it is, Sean? The ambassadors? Admirals. Admirals. Knew it started with an A though. And uh, uh, he said, man, do you ever use it for that? And I'm like, nah, man, I, I just go sit in the normal people loading dock. <laughs> I mean, I just usually go to the closest place that has a plug and I'm within walking distance of a soda if I want one. He's like, no, man, you need to go to the Admiral's Club. He's like, you, you'll ne- they got free food in there. They got free drinks in there. They got comfortable seats in there. Man, you'll never stop going. It changed my airport experience. And I said, yeah, but if I go there, I have a better chance of seeing Sean. So, uh, <laughs> no, man, I, I think I was like, that's cool. I, that'd be great. I, I mean, I didn't know that it did that. That's great. I'll take advantage of that. You know what? The reason God gave his son for you is so that one day you might be treated extravagantly. Friend, I don't deserve that. The Bible says where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And I'm telling you, it's going to take a whole lot of grace to cover up all the mess ups I've had. And yet the Bible tells me one day when I get to heaven, each and every day, I'm not going to be criticized and my sins aren't going to be broadcast on a wall. But God is going to treat me uh, with with so much grandeur and so much favor. I, I just can't even describe that to you. God's grace is universal. God's grace is unequaled. And the third law that God's grace operates under is this. God's grace is unchanging. From Old Testament to New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, God's grace is unchanging. Look at verse number 7. The Bible says that in the ages to come. You see, God's grace does not have an expiration date on it. God's grace will last The Bible says in Romans chapter 11, verse number 6, that the one unchanging truth about God's grace is this, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Now, you may not fully comprehend the depth of that verse, but let me put it to you as real as I can, okay? Today, we took Amanda's parents out to lunch. We went to Napoli's, got a little Italian restaurant right here in Joshua. We go there quite regularly, and we went with them to lunch. And I ordered, I was trying to be responsible, I ordered sweet tea, okay? Uh, that's, my, that's my good day drink, right? If I order Dr. Pepper, that's my cheating day, which is just about every day. But today, I was trying to be good, so I ordered sweet tea. 
About halfway through the meal, I drank my first glass of sweet tea. And the waiter, I don't know, I guess he just had lost track of what had happened. He comes by and he fills my glass. So I said what I always say. I try to be very respectful of waiters. You know the best way to become respectful of waiters? Try it. It's awful. Let's have a youth event where you serve the youth department. Man, it's terrible. That's where I learned to respect waiters and waitresses. And our waiter came by and he filled up my glass to the brim. And I said, hey, man, thanks. I appreciate that. And then I looked down at my glass. And it was dark, like, like black. And I realized that Charlie's glass was sitting right next to mine. And he had filled mine with the same thing that Charlie had ordered. So he filled my glass with Dr. Pepper. But my glass wasn't completely empty of tea. And while he's still hovering over the table, Charlie does this thing where he can't like hold his laughter in and he just kind of puts his head down and he starts kind of shaking and he thinks he's hiding it, but he's doing a terrible job. And, and now I'm laughing and you know, we're both sitting there and he goes, the waiter walks off and Charlie goes, hey man, I hope you enjoy your Dr. T. <laughs> and I'm like... I didn't want to be rude. I didn't want to tell him, you know, hey, I love Dr. Pepper. I mean, that's a good thing, but I ordered tea. And, and, and so Charlie now is hanging on the edge of the cliff as I take my half tea, half Dr. Pepper and drink it to find out if it's even edible. I told him it's not bad. It just tastes like you took all the carbonation out of Dr. Pepper and added nothing in its place. You see, if it's Dr. Pepper, I love Dr. Pepper. If it's tea, I love sweet tea. I told Charlie, how bad can it be? I mean, it's two great things added into the same glass. I said, I don't know, man. <laughs> Look, grace and works have never been able to mix. It is an unchanging universal truth of God's holy word that you either live a life in grace or you either live a life in works. You see, there's two truths I want to share with you real quick about this, two characteristics. Number one, grace is accepted and continued in by humility. A life of grace must be accepted by humility. Realizing how bad you were and what God did for you, that ought to humble the Christian. Verse number 8, the Bible says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, the unmerited favor. God gave us a gift when we were undeserving of it. The definition of grace is just that, undeserved favor of God. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You see, the reason Christ came, the reason Christ died, so that he could live righteously and declare anybody that believed in him righteous as well. And then the passage says this. Where is boasting then? Amen. It is excluded. Yes. By what law? 
of works? Nay, but by the law of faith, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Christian, you either live your life tomorrow in faith of your works or in faith of grace. But there is no mixture of it. There is no uh, cocktail that will allow you entrance into heaven or, or some amount of favor with God. You must realize that your life must humbly accept that if you live your life by yourself, you're on your way to hell. But if you accept grace by Jesus Christ, you're on your way to heaven. But it takes humility and it takes the fact of really realizing who you are to God. Heaven is an ego-free zone. I wonder why more Christians aren't that way on earth then. It's amazing to me how many Christians are so ready to cast how much better they are than you on you. If heaven is full of a bunch of humble people that realize that God died for them, How in the world is earth filled with a bunch of Christians that look down on their brothers and their sisters in Christ? They say stuff like, my standards are better, my commitment is more, my service is more sincere, my mission is more meaningful than yours. But that's not a life of grace. You know, Jesus' first sermon that he ever preached was actually very short. He read a passage of Scripture and then he said, This day is the Scripture fulfilled in your ears. And then you know what they said? Everybody that heard Jesus' first sermon, they marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. Probably the same way they marveled when they brought the woman caught in the very act of adultery. I love that. We caught her in adultery. The very act. Like, calm down, guys. And they catch this woman in adultery. They bring her to Jesus and they say, what does the law say we should do with her? Jesus knelt down in the sand and kind of rode in the sand there. And, and, and then he stood up and said, you know what? How about, how about the, the person in the crowd that's perfect? How about you throw the first stone? And I can hear as, as the rocks fall out of their hands and smash against the sand and they all leave realizing that not one of them is qualified to throw the first stone. That's probably the same type of grace that Jesus spoke with in his first sermon. Not one of judgment, but one of understanding and love. Oh, we must be humble, Christian. We must be humble to recognize that new Christians can't be expected to be saints overnight. We must understand that some tattoos last longer than just the day after they get saved. Some scars of this old wicked and rotten world might linger a little bit. Oh, they might be a new creature in Christ, but their old nature climbs back up and calls for their attention each and every day. How about us older Christians wrap them in love and say, my friend, you can do it by God's grace. That is a humble Christian that is living a gracious Christian life. If grace is accepted and continued in by humility then this is true also. Works are accepted and continued in by pride. You know, the Bible says in James chapter four, verse six, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. 
You want to you get a little prideful about the person that you've become? You want to think that you're a little better because you're more faithful about your Bible reading or that you, you know a little bit more about the Bible? You start doing that. You know what the Bible says about pride? Well, number one, it says it is as the sin of witchcraft, and I don't want no part of that. But it also says that pride goeth before a fall and, or, or destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So God wants no part of a Christian that is full of pride. But works does that. Living your life as if some way the works that you do could please God produces pride in the Christian life. It's just like the Pharisees, isn't it? Oh, look how spiritual we are. Oh, look how much scripture we know. Oh, we go above and beyond to do the law and to know the law. And what happened? They were the most prideful people in all Jerusalem. I want you to take your Bible quickly with me in Luke chapter 18. Hopefully this evening you've learned something about grace you did not know already. But Luke chapter 18, I'm going to help you discern and distinguish between a life that is lived in grace and a life that lives in works. How do you know that the works that you are doing are produced by grace and they're not just empty and vain? I want to share it with you. Luke chapter 18, verse number 9. We'll only be about another 10 more minutes. Verse number 9 says this. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I want to share with you very quickly five characteristics of a Christian that lives their life daily in grace. Number one, this Christian will rely entirely on grace for their standing with God. Look at verse number nine. The Bible says, and, he, uh, and certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. If you do not recognize right up front that apart from God's grace, you cannot even stand in his presence. You have no part of grace. If you don't understand that your sin has so separated you from our holy God, you do not understand the very fundamental of grace, which is this. You do not deserve it. Grace is the undeserved favor of God. And certainly we have experienced that through salvation, but you also experience that in your sanctification. You experience grace every single day, and that is what gives you a standing with God. I see Christians get discouraged because they can't slay some giants. 
I see Christians discouraged because they can't pull down some strongholds. But your ability to do those things does not garner God's favor or His attention. The only thing that gets God's attention is His grace and love towards you. So, first, uh, or John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But as many as received Him... To them gave He power to be called the sons of God, and even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. A A Christian that lives their life in grace each and every day will, number one, rely on God's grace entirely for their standing with God. Number two, he will reflect a love for people as God does. In verse number nine, not only does the Bible say these, this man uh, or these men trusted in themselves as righteousness, it said, and despised others. You cannot have experienced God's grace and then not extend God's grace. Experiencing God's grace helps you realize that you did not deserve it. Therefore, you can extend grace to others that do not deserve it. I don't understand how in Christianity we seem to not be able to get along. We have the greatest greatest rallying beacon of all time, and that is the cross of our Savior. I don't understand why we can't get along. John chapter 13 verse 35 says, By this shall all men that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. 1 John chapter 4 puts it like this. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. You cannot love God and hate your brother. A Christian that lives his life each and every day in God's grace will, number one, rely entirely on the grace of God for his standing with God. Number two, he will reflect a love for God's people as God does. Not only God's people, let me correct that, all people. Number three, he will refuse to compare himself with others. In verse number 11, the Bible says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. You know why this is such a foolish practice? It's because the, the scales are not just. The judge is not righteous. You ever heard of being biased a little bit? And when you start comparing yourself with others, what you quickly do is you pile on every problem that they have and dismiss everyone that you have. Well, mine's not as big or mine's not as bad. Mine's not as dirty. Theirs is, whoa, man. And it's a foolish thing to do. The Bible even says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves to some that commend themselves... But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. You know who the standard of our life ought to be? Christ. And if I start comparing myself with Chris Dyer, well, I I, kind of compare well, I, I guess maybe. No, it's foolish. And there's no way that we can be completely informed on their Christian life, so we judge it so partially and so biased that it is a foolish practice. I don't believe a gracious Christian would extend that type of uh, judgment on others, so we refuse to compare ourselves with others. We reflect a love 
for people as God does, we rely entirely on God's grace for our standing with God. Number four, they regard their love for God more important than their work for God. If the primary motivation for the reason you live this Christian life is not your love for God, something is out of place. The Bible says the love of Christ constraineth us. If it is not the love of Christ that arrests your allegiance for Christ, then you will certainly wash away when the tides roll in. What happens when when your love takes a back seat to the problems that you're facing? The Bible does not say the first and great commandment is this, that you serve God no matter what comes. No, the first and great commandment is this, that you love God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Everything else falls into place when your love for Jesus is in the right place. Some people in the Bible chose works above the love, above the relationship. There's a group of people that the Bible says one day will appear before God to give an account. And he'll tell them that they have no part in heaven. And they'll say, but Lord, have we not cast out many demons in thy name? Have we not prophesied on on your behalf? Lord, look at all we've done. And you know what God's going to say? Depart, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Relationship must be the, the thing that produces results. You cannot go on a bus route and show some child how much God loves them unless you fully well acknowledge how much He loves you. A gracious Christian will regard their love for God more than their works for God. And if you're worried about your works falling into place, James chapter 2 says it's just automatic. You love God and you live by faith, your works will come as a result of that. Then number five, and we close. A gracious Christian will exercise grace in their daily life because of this. And I believe, I hate to put it on a scale, but I think this one's probably the most impactful for me. Because that Christian will remember where they started from. Verse number 13. The Bible says, And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. Christian, how can we cast judgment or criticism or condemnation on someone when we realize that we, not too long ago we were in their same shoes? We were the sinner. We were the weak young Christian. We were the one that was struggling coming out of the world. How can we look at somebody else and start, oh, point your bony finger at them? How can we do that when we were in their shoes not so very long ago? I believe it was Bill Gaither wrote a song and it goes like this. If you could see what I once was, if you could go with me back to where I started from, then I know you'd see the miracle of love that gently took me in its sweet embrace and made me what I am today, just a sinner Saved by grace.
How can we judge others? How can we condemn others? How can we think that our works are somehow a result of our effort or our, our, our work for God? Our life is to be lived in the grace of our God. And we see our God like the master builder and potter that he is over time sculpting and molding our life by his grace each and every day to one day make us an ornament of grace for his glory.